Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of Financial Advisor. Over the summer, the Financial Conduct Authority proposed a ban on contingent charging, which has divided the financial advice profession. I'm here with Edwin Schooling-Latter, the FCA's Director of Markets and Wholesale Policy, to discuss some of the ins and outs about why the regulators proposed the ban and how the ban would work if it came into effect. Uh, hello, Edwin. Hello, Damien. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, so what were the reasons that the FCA um, changed its stance on contingent uh, charging, having previously uh, not been uh, in favour of one? Well, we've been expressing our concern about the problematic incentives created by the practice of contingent charging for, for some time. This structure has uncomfortable similarities with the commission-based advisor remuneration that has been prohibited in retail distribution of most other investment products since end 2012. But we have also been mindful that most consumers are required to take advice before they can transfer out of a defined benefit pension scheme. So we wanted carefully to test the argument put by some that banning contingent charging would make access to advice unaffordable and pension transfer impossible for the small minority of consumers who might actually benefit from a transfer. So we carefully collected data on the extent of advice to transfer before proceeding with this proposal. And at the end of last year, we completed compilation of data from across the transfer market and that showed that 69% of consumers receiving advice were advised to transfer. That is far higher than we would expect, given that most consumers are likely to maximise their income and minimise risk in retirement by staying in their defined benefits scheme. Meanwhile, where we have conducted more detailed supervisory work into files collected from advisors, only in about half of cases can that advice to transfer be considered clearly suitable on the basis of these firms' own file evidence. To us, that's a strong pointer that something is leading to poor advice to transfer when this is not in the client's interests. And contingent charging, which is of course charges collected only if the client transfers, mm -hmm. is one of the more obvious factors that's in the frame for this. Hence the proposal to ban, while leaving a carve out from that ban, for that minority of consumers who have defined special circumstances which might make transfer a good choice. For instance, limited life expectancy or significant financial hardship, such as the potential loss of their home. Mm. Now, I think, I think I'm right in saying that um, after proposing the ban, you, you said that you don't know how many advice companies in the UK have a contingent charging structure. So do you feel that you have enough evidence to introduce a ban? Well, we don't know um, the extent of contingent charging across every single case, but the data that are available to us, which are from supervisory review of chosen firms, that's a lot of data, suggests that contingent charging is widespread, used in around 80% of the cases that we've looked at. And across the market as a whole, as I said earlier, 69% of advice is to transfer. So that coincidence of one, the prevalence of contingent charging, two, the prevalence of advice to transfer, and three, an obvious financial incentive for the advisor to recommend that transfer adds up to powerful evidence in our view. One other point to add would be that this isn't just a handful of firms. In fact, 60% of all firms are recommending that more than 75% of their clients transfer.
Given the numbers that you've just quoted, obviously 69% of recommendations being in favour of a transfer, despite the fact that you think it's very, it should be a minority sport. Um, is the issue with contingent charging deeper than that, in the sense that some, some of the, some most of the advisors who operate in this space are, are just um, not operating ethically? Well, all advisors are able to operate ethically. The real question is is whether any are unwilling to do so, perhaps because of the conflicts of interest we've been discussing. Now, um, my sense is that there are plenty of advisors out there who take real professional pride in giving the right advice. But we will also use our supervisory and enforcement powers supplemented by the data collection which our rules propose to find and to root out advisors that we find to be acting unethically or incompetently and against their clients best interests. We are devoting significant resource to that and in fact our supervisors are already knocking on the doors of firms that our data identify as high risk. Mm. So what would you say the danger is that advisors game the ban? So for example they uh, charge a small fee up front uh, and then uh, an, another fee if the, if the transfer goes ahead or they, they find some way around it? So that's a good question. Charging a small fee up front and a second fee only if the transfer goes ahead would be a contingent charge and that would be a contravention of the proposed rules. Now the rules we've put out for consultation also seek to prevent gaming in some other obvious ways. Um, for example by setting out charging structures that would fall foul of the ban, such as you know, having a separate implementation charge um, distinct from the advice charge. Mm -hmm. But we would welcome feedback um, from your listeners to this on how best we can frame those rules to prevent gaming from occurring. Sure. And one of the, uh, the criticisms that has often been levied with me about the, a contingent charging ban is that um, lots of ongoing charges are essentially contingent charging because if you recommend that an advisor transfers and you take over the management of their investment portfolio once it's the transfer has gone ahead then you get an, on, an ongoing charge until they stop you stop managing that money so we agree that ongoing charges create another incentive to advise on a transfer even where that is in fact contrary to the client's interests so our proposals also include three measures to mitigate um, that conflict without, of course, banning charges for ongoing services. So firstly, um, our proposed rules strengthen the requirements for advisors who do recommend a transfer to consider and to present to the consumer the option of transfer into a workplace pension scheme where that's available. And in those workplace schemes, there is, of course, less need for consumers to take ongoing advice, and it should also reduce the number of transfers involving unnecessarily complex solutions or high product charges. Second, the proposed rules require advisors to set out clearly upfront and on the front of the advice the ongoing cost of any transfer option they propose in pounds and pence, not just percentages, and to show that alongside the cost of transferring into that existing employer or workplace scheme where it exists and is available. We think that will help clients appreciate how much products that are recommended, how much any ongoing advice that is offered will cost. Third, we've proposed in those rules that firms must get consumers explicitly to sign up for any ongoing services. 
rather than being in effect defaulted into them as part of the transfer decision, as can happen in some cases at present. Mm. I suppose this is a particular problem at vertically integrated firms where they might have internal um, discretionary fund management services. Um, is that um, a, a particular concern that you have? Are you doing anything specifically to, to address that issue? Well, those measures I described will apply across the board, including to vertically integrated firms. In terms of unregulated investments, have you considered uh, banning transfers into all unregulated structures? Because that's often an issue when um, it's transferred into a SIP and then the SIP is invested in a, a Guatemalan rainforest. Well, it's sometimes an issue, and we've previously set out our requirements and expectations of firms in relation to the sale of unregulated investments and non-mainstream pooled investments, as they're called in the jargon. So, for example, advisors' obligations to ensure that those investments are suitable and clear disclosure to the consumer about risks. And those rules and expectations apply to pension transfers just as they do in other circumstances. But it should be clear that our proposed rules on pension transfers do not include a complete prohibition on investment in unregulated structures. However, if the advisor secures a payment for himself by transferring a client's funds into an unregulated structure, then that would be a contingent charge and that would contravene our rules. Mm. Do you feel there's a, a case for a, a, a deeper review into how advisors um, operate in this space? Uh, how, because obviously, if it continues to, if it continues at about 69% um, recommending a transfer, will there be a need for uh, a larger review on, on this? So, our extensive supervisory work in this market is going to continue while we're consulting on these rules. Um, if and when those rules um, come into effect, as we intend, um, subject to the consultation responses, that will give us a much deeper um, information set on where firms are continuing to advise transfer in situations or in proportions that we wouldn't expect. And we will be looking very, very closely at those firms. Mm. What do you consider to be an acceptable, in inverted commas, um, level of, of recommendations to transfer? Um. It's difficult to put a very precise number on that, but we sure. do recognise that there are um, a small, there is a small proportion of consumers for whom transfer could be a good decision. As I mentioned earlier, um, that's likely to include people with um, particularly limited life expectancy or sometimes when in the absence of um, a major um, uh, inflow of funds, um, they face repossession of their home or something like that. But overall, that is going to be a small proportion of the total definitely well, well short of 69%, and I would say well, well short of 50% too. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, well, thank you very much for, for taking part, Edwin, and thank you very much for listening. And for more information on the FCA's proposals, please do visit ftadvisor.com and tune in again soon. Thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.